0: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Rocktober, where I share stories of rock and roll mayhem. Since it's almost all Hallow's Eve, or Halloween, in this final chapter of the series, I'll dig into my file of spooky stories to share some haunted happenings in the world of rock and roll. First up, a mansion built in the turn of the century in sunny California has a long and storied history already, when in the early 1990s, It becomes a residence and recording studio for some of rock music's most celebrated bands. But when they live and work there, several musical artists will claim to witness paranormal events. This is the last chapter of the series Rocktober, Rock and Roll Haunts. Imagine you're taking a drive through Hollywood. Go ahead, put yourself in a convertible or whatever vehicle you'd like to imagine yourself driving on a nice sunny day in Southern California. You're driving down Hollywood Boulevard, passing gas stations, liquor stores, strip clubs, cafes, and every other type of business you typically encounter on a major thoroughfare. At each red light, and there are many, you gaze out at the people going about their day. Some walking with earbuds inserted, an attempt to isolate themselves in the middle of a crowded city, some waiting for buses looking tired after a day of hard work, others sitting under umbrellas at corner coffee shops, happily texting or chatting away on cell phones. You reach the end of Hollywood Boulevard and make a right where the road takes you up a winding road into a hilly canyon. You are now on Laurel Canyon Boulevard, which will lead you up into the West Hollywood Hills. As you go higher up the hill, and leave the noise and traffic of the city behind you, you'll see some gated homes, some obscured behind landscaping, installed to keep prying eyes away. You see, Laurel Canyon has long been a preferred location for Hollywood's elite, studio heads and media executives and movie stars, to call home. Early film stars like Clara Bow, Boris Karloff, and Errol Flynn all had homes in Laurel Canyon. But it was in the 1960s that the neighborhood became famous as the home of many rock musicians and artists. Frank Zappa, Jim Morrison, Joni Mitchell, Jimi Hendrix, John Mayle, Brian Wilson, and Neil Young all spent time as residents of Laurel Canyon. But there was at least one home in Laurel Canyon that became not just a residence for rock musicians, but also a place where many artists would go to create and record music. Ralph M. Walker built a Mediterranean-style villa in 1915. It was three stories tall and contained 11 bedrooms, nine bathrooms, a ballroom with a stage, and a ballet room. The address was 2398 Laurel Canyon Boulevard, but the number would later be changed. Ralph Walker had a famous friend, the magician, or should I say illusionist, Harry Houdini. Some would later call the villa the Houdini Mansion, but Houdini never owned it and most likely never lived there. Instead, he rented a four-bedroom guest house across the street, also owned by Walker, at 2435 Laurel Canyon Boulevard. However, by most reports, Houdini used the pool at the main house to practice some of his underwater escapes. The property also had another interesting feature. Walker had a tunnel installed underneath the villa that connected it with the guest house across the street. Later, after Houdini died in 1926, Bess, Houdini's wife, continued to live in the guest house. She would use these tunnels to escort her guests to the main house to conduct seances in an attempt to communicate with her late husband. Incidentally, Houdini died on Halloween, October 31, 1926. Perhaps in her attempt to communicate with spirits, Bess opened up the way to other spirits that would later be said to haunt the property. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In 1935, the villa was sold to a real estate broker and had a number of interesting renters, including Joe Jeffers, a controversial and often jailed evangelist who came to town in 1946. He rented the Los Angeles mansion and founded a church there, calling it the Kingdom of Yahweh. Neighbors soon began to complain of Jefferson, and his disciples disturbing the peace at all hours with his fiery sermons, denouncing Hollywood's immorality and calling studio heads and others out by name which is ironic, considering that Jeffers himself had been charged with indecency in 1939. Investigating the so-called profit for fraud, cops had raided his Wilshire Avenue high-rise where a party was in full swing and caught him and his wife in, quote, exotic and illegal sexual acts, unquote. He was acquitted, but would later be arrested and jailed for car theft, emerging from prison in 1946 and forming the Kingdom of Yahweh. Kingdom members were reportedly fleeced for money, with some required to pay upwards of $100,000 to live on the property. At least a dozen of his disciples would later sue him for fraud and misrepresentation. His parole would be later revoked, and Jeffers was returned to prison. The property was then purchased by Fanny A. Pearson, who intended to turn it into a girls' school. But in 1959, the Great Laurel Canyon Fire tore through the canyon burning down the villa and guest house, and the property was condemned. The ruins would finally be demolished in 1970. Pearson retained ownership of the property until 1989, when at the age of 70, she placed it on the market, selling it for $2.5 million. Around this time, the rumor was repeated in the press that it had been owned by Harry Houdini, and at that time, became incorrectly labeled the Houdini Mansion but the guest house where Houdini resided, as far as I can tell, was never rebuilt. The house would be rebuilt as a Spanish-style villa and another address assigned to it. Fast forward to the 1990s, and depending on when you grew up, you might consider the greatest time for rock music, at least in your opinion. Record producer Rick Rubin purchased the home, using it in part as a recording studio. Artists that recorded there include the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Marilyn Manson, Jay-Z, System of a Down, Linkin Park, and Slipknot. This is where the spooky stuff comes in, as I promised. Several musical artists and others who lived and worked at what is just now called The Mansion have reported seeing ghostly apparitions and witnessing paranormal phenomena. There had already been rumors about the Laurel Canyon Mansion being haunted before Rick Rubin purchased it. One story told was of the son of a wealthy business owner who, rejected by his love, pushed her off one of the mansion's balconies where she fell to her death. Another was a story about a suicide that was said to have occurred in the home when it stood vacant. A man dressed in a tuxedo was found hanging from a ceiling fixture in one of the bedrooms. The first reported hauntings at the mansion for the purposes of this story happened in May and June of 1991. Rick Rubin was producing the Red Hot Chili Peppers' fifth studio album titled Blood Sugar Sex Magic. It was their first album with Warner Brothers Records, and the first time they'd worked with Rubin. The album's release date was scheduled for September of that year, and in order for the band to have no distractions and be able to complete it in time, Rubin suggested that they move into the mansion to live and record there in the fully equipped studio. So in May, the Chili Peppers' lead singer, Anthony Kiedis, bassist Flea, drummer Chad Smith, and keyboard player John Ruscianti arrived at the mansion to begin work. Only Chad Smith declined to stay at the house, traveling back and forth each day from his home by motorcycle. In total, the band would stay at the mansion for seven weeks. Without giving many details, the band members would admit that they believed the house was haunted. There were ghosts everywhere, Kiedis told Classic Rock magazine in 2016. It was obvious to us there's a real world of spirits that people just aren't tuned into. We were accepting of the fact that we were living among them. We were there to make music and to coexist in what was more their house than ours, he told the reporter. They also provided proof of the spirits they say haunted the mansion. Photographs were taken of the band at the house to be used for the album artwork. In one photo, the band is grouped together, and behind them, an orb, or a circular floating object, is seen hovering behind them. The photo was used in the inner album cover. Apparently, the presence of these spirits did not bother the band, and they even returned to the mansion to record their ninth album, Stadium Arcadium, in 2006. A film was recorded during the Chili Peppers stay at the mansion. In it, you can see the band record some of their best-known songs, Give It Away and Under the Bridge, and you can also see the property. Titled Funky Monks, the documentary was directed by Gavin Bowden and released in 1991. An uncut version can be found on YouTube. But it was a different experience for the next band that took up residency at the mansion. In 2003, the heavy metal band Slipknot moved in to begin recording Volume 3, the subliminal verses. They'd heard the rumors of the supposed hauntings, but were merely intrigued. Before long, they would come to realize that some real shit was going down at their new digs. lead singer Corey Taylor was a believer in the paranormal from the time he had a terrifying experience at the age of nine in his hometown of Des Moines, Iowa. In his book, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Heaven, Taylor details the story of the time he and a group of friends went to a house that was rumored to be haunted and which he alleges he came face-to-face with a supernatural entity. He then goes into his experience 20 years later when he spent seven months living in the Laurel Canyon mansion. Oh, it's haunted, Taylor told Blubbermouth.com soon afterwards. I've seen it and dealt with it for six months. I've got stories that would raise the hair on the back of your neck, he said then. But it wasn't until a decade later that he would be ready to share all the terrifying details in his book. It didn't take long after the band arrived at the mansion that strange things began to happen. The entire band hadn't even arrived yet when the first members, including Taylor, decided to explore the house. The massive home had about 11 bedrooms that were situated at the end of several wings in the home. Taylor said it was easy to get lost in the enormous home, and they were happily exploring it when they first arrived, until they reached the basement. There was a bedroom set up in the basement that was sparsely furnished. At the far wall of the room was another small room with a door that slid open to one side. Taylor opened it and peered inside. It was pitch black. There were no lights or windows, and he couldn't make out what the room was used for. Oddly, while it was a warm Los Angeles day and the air conditioning had not had time to cool the entire house since their arrival yet, they found that this one room was very cold. One of the other guys dared Taylor to step inside the room. He was game and stepped inside into the middle of the room while someone closed the door behind him. It was just a fun game, he thought. He was not worried at all. And then suddenly, he had a feeling like something walked right through him. Like I described earlier, the room was in complete darkness, and Taylor hadn't seen anything, but the feeling chilled him to the bone. Then he felt like he was being pushed backwards. Now he felt as if his entire body was gripped by an icy entity. He reached for the door handle and ran out of the room and as fast as he could get back up the stairs, while his bandmates stared after him in surprise. When they inquired as to what had happened, Taylor didn't want to talk about it and declined to respond. It took some time before the coldness that had gripped him finally dissipated. But they would experience many instances of paranormal activity over the several months they lived in the mansion. First, there were unexplained technical and musical equipment malfunctions. Amps and other electrical equipment would fail, and then begin working again, apparently without cause. Sounds, not made by the musicians, would be looped into recordings and then have to be re-recorded. While the band was recording the song Vermilion, Taylor says, quote, another ghost got into the machine in the control room. It started looping a section of the verse, so we hit record and begin making a remix of that loop, unquote. Taylor says this can be heard on the album between the songs Before I Forget and Vermilion Part 2. Go listen to it. It's pretty creepy. Other unexplained events occurred in the mansion. Items would disappear from their places and be found in other locations clear across the house. One time, the band went to a record store on the Sunset Strip and, as a joke, bought a whole stack of postcards with Robert F. Kennedy's portrait printed on them. Each of the guys displayed them in their rooms, but each time, the photos would be knocked off wherever they had been placed. Someone, or something was not a fan of the late Senator Kennedy, it appeared. As strange as these occurrences were, they were still nothing in comparison to other chilling events that began to happen with increased frequency. Something that was an ongoing problem while the band stayed in the mansion was the temperature control. Each wing of the house had its own thermostat that could be set for comfort. Corey Taylor was sharing a wing with two bedrooms at either end of a hallway with percussionist Sean Clown Crahan. Los Angeles, especially in the foothills, can get very hot during the day. So every morning, Taylor set the thermostat at 70 degrees Fahrenheit to keep their rooms cool throughout the day. He soon noticed that every morning before long, his room began to feel warm, and he would check the thermostat control. Every time, he would see it had been moved up to 85 degrees. At first, this was just curious. Then it became annoying. One day, Taylor brought some friends to the house and they were just hanging out, having a good time. Someone began taking pictures as they jumped around and acted like big kids. After a little while, Taylor again noticed that the room had become stiflingly hot. Once again, the temperature had been moved up to 85 degrees. For some reason, he became curious and looked through the photos they had shot that afternoon. In one of them, his friend had happened to be standing in front of the thermostat controller. Behind him, visible just above the thermostat, were three orbs. Taylor told the guys what had been happening with the temperature and showed them the photo. They all decided it was time to leave the room and take the party elsewhere. One night, Taylor was asleep and woke up to loud ballroom music playing. At first, he couldn't figure out where it was coming from, so he got up and followed the sound. He opened his door and peered down the hall, but the music seemed to be louder inside his room than outside he followed the sound back into his room, where he discovered the music coming from inside his closet. He opened the door, and the music immediately stopped. There was nothing inside the closet that could have been playing the music. He tried to forget about it and went back to sleep. The next morning, he asked his bandmate, Sid Wilson, whose room was directly below his, if he'd been playing a radio the previous evening. Sid said he hadn't, but had also heard the music and thought Taylor was responsible. But strange things weren't just happening in Taylor's part of the house, and not all of the occurrences were as innocuous as phantom music or a slight rise in temperature. Several times, the band members would be woken up at night from the sound of someone screaming in their faces. But when they opened their eyes, the screaming stopped, and there was no one in the room. Others would feel someone sitting down on their bed while they were lying in it, but again, no one was visible. Dogs that were staying on the property would go crazy, barking at things that were invisible as well. On one entire night, horrible sounds could be heard coming from the attic. It sounded like a murder was being committed, and the terrifying shrieks and violent blows hurtled their blood all night long. Not all the unwelcome visitors were invisible, however. Several times, again while in their beds, one of the guys or another would have the feeling of being watched, sit up in bed, and see a figure standing at the end of it. Before they had time to react, the ghostly figure would disappear. One terrifying story Clown told Taylor was something he saw one night when he got up to use the bathroom. The two rooms that they were staying in shared one bathroom that was located in the corner of Taylor's room, close to the door. Clown had to walk past Taylor's bed to enter it. As he did so, he noticed that there were two lumps in Taylor's bed, and while it was dark and he couldn't make out who it was, he assumed he'd had a date and got lucky. The figure under the covers next to Taylor was moving and squirming around. But when Clown reached the bathroom and turned on the light switch, he looked back and saw that Taylor was alone in the bed. He later told him what he'd seen, and Taylor admits that this story still freaks him out to this day. But that wasn't the worst of what Corey Taylor experienced while living in the mansion at Laurel Canyon. I've left the two most frightening stories for last. One night, Corey Taylor was getting ready to shower and dress and head out to see what trouble he could get up to. Clown was gone out of town, so Taylor had the entire wing to himself. The door that led to their rooms was locked, as was Clown's door. So Taylor took advantage of the privacy and solitude and was walking around in the buff before heading into the shower. And hey, why shut the bathroom door if he was alone, right? So he left it wide open. While he began shampooing his hair, he could see out into his room through a gap in the shower curtain. He happened to glance up and saw a man dressed in a tuxedo walking past the open bathroom door, staring straight at him. Of course, Taylor freaked, jumped out of the shower soaking wet, and ran into the bedroom. But, you guessed it, no one was there. He checked the door. It was locked, as was the door that led to the balcony. There was no way someone could have gotten in or out that quickly and through locked doors. This suggests to me that this apparition, if that's what it was, wasn't some gauzy nebulous figure, but looked like an actual living, breathing human being, which I would find more terrifying, I think. But Taylor also realized that the direction the man had come from would have made it necessary for him to have passed through the door of the bedroom without opening it, as he would have seen that from his position in the shower. That is something no flesh-and-blood person could have done. So for Taylor, this was proof positive that this was a paranormal visit. It wasn't until much later that Taylor heard the story about the man dressed in a tuxedo who'd taken his own life in the home decades earlier. Finally, just before his time at the mansion was ending, once again Taylor was alone. Clown had already departed to spend some time with his family before the band began their tour to promote the new album. Taylor was also mostly packed up and ready to go, it had one more night left in the mansion. Sometime between two and three in the morning, he believes, Taylor awoke to see a figure standing at the end of his bed. Even with all the other weird things that had occurred over the almost seven months he'd lived in the home, at first, Groggy was asleep. He assumed it was one of the other guys who was in his room. Then suddenly and violently, the covers were jerked off his bed. They were pulled with such force that Taylor, having had one arm hooked around the top of the cover over his chest, was pulled up from the bed and then fell back down. He was about to say, What the fuck, dude? when he opened his eyes to see, nobody was there. He got up to investigate, still halfway believing, or maybe hoping, it was one of his bandmates fucking with him, even though most of them were already gone. But he probably knew the answer. Someone may have been fucking with him, but it wasn't one of his friends. The next day, he left the mansion. While he had some great times there and felt they turned out a great album, he wasn't sad to leave. He never returned to the mansion again. So, did his paranormal experiences at the mansion scare Corey Taylor away from haunted places forever? That would be a big, fat no. As a matter of fact, he became a ghost hunter of sorts, forming a little group of like-minded weirdos who began investigating the most haunted places they could find. He wrote a whole book about it that I highly recommend, and from where I got these stories about his time living in Laurel Canyon. Also, it's hilarious. It's called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Heaven. I've included a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. So are you totally creeped out yet? No? Okay, here's a few more rock and roll haunts for you, brave souls. Actor Dan Aykroyd of Saturday Night Live and Ghostbuster fame, ironically, owned a 4,800-square-foot home on Woodrow Wilson Drive in Los Angeles. Aykroyd became convinced that the house was still being inhabited by the ghost of the singer Cass, Mama Cass Elliot, of the Mamas and the Papas. Aykroyd said that the ghost would move jewelry across the dresser and turned the Stairmaster on and off. Maybe she was intrigued by the exercise machine, as they probably weren't available before her death in 1974. He also said that the ghost once climbed into bed with him. Aykroyd claimed to believe it was Cass, as it seemed to be a, quote, large ghost, unquote. Cass Elliot was famously a Rubenesque woman. Bon Scott lead singer of the band ACDC, died at the age of 33 of alcohol poisoning. A month after his death in March 1980, Brian Johnson was called to audition for ACDC. With the blessing of Bond's father, the band decided to try and continue, but a new lead singer had to be found. Johnson was on a short list of singers the band thought might fit their sound. The next month, he got a call that would change his life. He was the new lead singer for The first album he would front was Hell's Bells, released just three months later. Brian Johnson said he was nervous at how he would be perceived by ACDC fans and if he could live up to the memory of Bon Scott. He says, quote, I thought, who am I to try to follow in the footsteps of this great poet? Because Bon really was kind of a poet, unquote. Johnson would later say that the night before he was to go into the studio to record Back in Black, He was sitting in his hotel room alone with these thoughts heavy on his mind. He would never say exactly what happened, but he did say that he experienced something that night that he couldn't explain, but it caused him to believe that he was doing the right thing, and had received Bon Scott's blessing to take up his torch. And you know, Back in Black went on to become the fifth best-selling album of all time in the United States, selling over 22 million copies. you may remember me mentioning the band The Flying Burrito Brothers from the Altamont episode. Graham Parsons was the band's singer and songwriter and formerly the singer of The Birds. Parsons was all in on the psychedelic drug scene. One of his favorite things to do was to spend time in the California desert around the Joshua Tree National Park. He would trip out on hallucinogens, hoping to spot UFOs. He was often accompanied by his manager and best friend, Phil Kaufman. Parsons told Kaufman that when he died, he wanted his body taken to Joshua Tree and burned on a pyre. Parsons died not long after this request was made, overdosing on morphine and alcohol at the age of 26 while staying at the Joshua Tree Inn. Parsons' family planned a funeral for him in Louisiana, but before his body could be shipped back to his home state, Kaufman, wanting to fulfill his buddy's last request, stole the body from LAX by posing as a mortuary worker. He then drove it out to the desert, where, aided by his assistant Michael Murphy, burned Parsons' body inside his coffin. Campers in the area saw the flames and called the police. Kaufman and Murphy were arrested, but there was no law in the books against stealing a dead body. They were fined $300 each for the misdemeanor theft of a casket. They also had to pay the $750 cost of the coffin they had destroyed. The partially burned body was retrieved and sent to Louisiana, where Parsons was buried at Memorial Lawn Cemetery near New Orleans. Parsons died in Room 8 of the Joshua Tree Inn, and many people have claimed to see his ghost still haunting that room. The room can still be rented by tourists, and the inn has created a memorial of sorts to the musician. There's a note on the reservation website that reads, Room 8 is haunted. Bring your guitar and write songs that will do it for this haunted episode of once upon a crime i'll be sharing one more rock and roll haunt with you on patreon to become a patron you just have to pledge as little as two dollars a month for the extra content add free episodes and more go to patreon.com slash once upon a crime to sign up i hope you all have a wonderful halloween and whatever you plan to do have fun and be safe Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.